So great a multitude had perished. Some grieved for sons, others for brothers. Children left fatherless bewailed the loss of a sire and the desolation of Italy. And large numbers of women, bereft of their husbands, were made acquainted with the sad fate of widowhood. The Senate, with courageous fortitude in the face of disaster, sought to restrain the general mourning and the excessive lamentation, and bore their heavy load of grief without showing it. Diodorus Welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 15, Simbri Wars Part 5, The Aftermath of Arecio. Before we begin, I want to congratulate our winners from last week's vote. Julia, Laren, Antigi, Jonathan, Nick, Paula, Peter, Kyle O'Brien, Richard, and Kyle Haynes. Congratulations, guys. You were right. You had faith that the Simbri would defeat not one, but two Roman armies. And for my Roman voters, I'm so sorry, but just because they build an empire doesn't mean they always win. As we move on discussing the relationship between the Romans and the Germans, you're going to see that the Romans are not always victorious. Now, as for today's episode, we're going to discuss the aftermath of this massive battle at Arecio. I want to stress that the Battle of Arecio is one of the largest disasters of the Roman Republic and even for the Empire. Four full legions, at least four, are wiped out by this roaming tribe along with twice that amount of Allied troops and camp followers. Now, numbers are always iffy when it comes to the Romans. But we believe that there was 80,000 Romans lost. Added into this is the fact that the Simpi were pretty brutal in their victory, as we have stories of them catching Roman and hanging them and sacrifice to their gods. Rome, while probably worried about the possibilities of the battle, would never have thought that they were going to lose this badly. We know that the Senate was worried about the commanders as they sent letters trying to cool both Capio and Malice and get them to work together. But they never, ever sent anything worried about Malice's position across the Rhone River. Because they don't even think it could go that bad. However, things go extremely bad. They go the worst for the Romans. With this defeat, all of Gaul is laid bare to the Cimbri. There are no Roman armies on that side of the Alps. In fact, there probably aren't that many Roman troops between the Cimbri and Rome itself at this point. For Rome, they have lost their land bridge. Spain is now cut off for them. The western half of their empire is laid open to the Cimbri. Over time, Rome can rebuild their armies. 
but they need that time, and it may not be available depending on what the Sembrai do. At this point, with the defeat at Ercio, Rome could fall in one push from the Sembrai. Rome is going to try to rebuild itself, but to do so, it has to face many problems with this defeat. And it's what we're going to talk about today, about Rome's recovery after the Battle of Arceo, and what the Cimbri do in the meantime. So first we're going to talk about the Romans. For the Romans, their important thing for them to do is to rebuild their army. They need that army back. They have to protect Rome itself from invasion. But unfortunately for the Romans, they have to deal with several other problems first in order to get that army. The first problem that Rome has to deal with is itself. With the crushing defeat, all of Rome is devastated. That report I read to you at the very beginning of this episode describes what it was like in Rome after the defeat at Ericeo. Families are mourning. Everyone is panicking. There is no army to be at hand. And rumors are surely spreading at this point that the Sembrai are at the passes of the Alps, ready to cross any day, devastating the land and destroying Rome like the Gauls of the olden days. To see the city of Rome in those days would have seen a city enraptured with fear. Crime would have surely risen. The merchants would have been panicking, and the economy would have been in a dangerous situation. But luckily enough for the Romans, the consul who did not go to the battle of Ericeo will keep his head, and he can restore the balance. His name is Rutilius Rufus, and he is a hero of Rome. Now, when I say he's a hero of Rome, he's not a Julius Caesar. He is a protector of Rome. He is the one who's there that can bring balance, restore order. The hero that is needed in this time of crisis. Now, if you don't know, the Romans always have two consuls during the Republic. This is to help keep power from being centralized into one person. And also allows them to deal with the extremities of the empire while maintaining control in Rome itself. So while Malleus was up in Gaul dealing with this invasion from the Cimbri, Rufus stayed at home in Rome. He made sure that the grain shipments came in. He made sure that there were no problems in any of the other outlying territories. However, now Malleus was dead, and this leaves Rufus in command. Luckily enough, Rufus can do the job, and he will save Rome from utter destruction. You see, after word reaches Rome, and panic starts to spread, the city falls into chaos. Rufus knew that Rome needed this new army to protect it, and he knew that it needed it fast. But there are several issues with building this army. First, Rufus has to get the manpower available 
so that way an army can be built. Rome has been depleting itself after years of fighting wars all over the empire. If you remember, we've been talking about them fighting in Africa, we've been talking about them fighting in Greece, and we've talked about them fighting in Spain. And not all these have gone well. They've lost armies in every single war. Completely wiped out. Now they need to build a brand new one. And they are surely low on manpower after all these years. But Rufus has a plan. You see, to gather the men, he sends out an order that, quote, the young men take an oath that none of them would travel anywhere outside of Italy, unquote. He didn't just rely on this directive, though. He was no fool. He knew people were panicking. So Rufus took it a further step and had messengers sent to all the ports of Italy, stating that no one under the age of 25 was allowed to leave the mainland. So by Cutting off the only way out of Italy, because remember, they could try to cross the Alps, but that would lead them into hostile territory of the Gauls, or risk getting close to the barbarians in the east. So the only safe way out was by boat. By closing these ways off, the Romans now have their manpower stuck in Italy, where Rufus can quickly gather them and build a new army. Now, while he has these men stuck in Italy, Rufus still needs them to be willing to fight. Doesn't matter how many men you have in an army. If they have no will to fight, they're useless. In fact, they're more than useless because they can be a threat to the rest of your army. They can rout and cause panic to spread. Remember, fear is rampaging throughout the Romans. None of them want to face the Sembri again. This is the third time they've lost, and this third time has been a massive defeat. They don't want to do it again. However, Rufus does a propaganda campaign that aims to remind the people that the fight is one of survival, that this war is one of desperation that they can't ignore. If they don't stop this threat, the Rome could fall. Their civilization could fall. So Rufus begins to grab every young man he can. He throws them into his new army. And he puts them with this knowledge that it's do or die. We do this or your families will be destroyed. Your farms will be burnt to the ground as the barbarians pierce the Alps and come down and take everything from us. He gives them the spirit that they need, but there's still another issue that Rufus has to deal with. You see, Rome needs to build this army quickly, but there are few veteran soldiers at hand that could train this gathered army. If the Cimbri moved across the Alps within the next few months, the army they would face from Rome would be a large, untrained mob. And so the rate of trading that was available in traditional means just wasn't enough. However, Rufus has an answer for this as well. 
He reaches out to the gladiator schools of Rome, and he hires their instructors to teach the soldiers how to fight. Now, this is a big breakaway from the traditional method of training, but it should prove to you how desperate the Romans were to fight off the Cimbri invasions. These trainers might not be able to teach the men the necessary tactics of the Roman army, but they could teach them how to fight, how to hold a sword, how to carry a shield. And this would give them better odds at facing the Cimbri warriors. Not the best, but better odds than what they had before. So while Rufus is working on rebuilding this Roman army, there's another problem that the Roman Republic has to deal with in this aftermath. And that is the allies of Rome. You see, Rome relies on its allies as well as its own people for its armies. As we can see at the Battle of Arecio, there was a 2 to 1 ratio of allied troops to Roman troops. And many of these allies were held to the Romans by fear and trade. However, there's a problem. If there's no fear, why should they stay with the Romans? And so the Romans have to question how loyal are these allies going to be after this third and massive defeat handed to them. They know for a fact that the Gallic tribes that have been so loyal to Rome during Capio's campaign are gone. And they know that those that can be gathered outside of the peninsula of Italy are going to be out of reach for the possible Cimbri invasion because it's going to take too long to gather the ships go out, collect the men, and bring them back. The biggest question for the Senate, though, is the loyalty of the northern Italians. Because if they're lost when the Cimbri invade, then Rome would be left open to invasion with very few allies. Rufus deals with this problem in part by closing the ports of Italy and enforcing Roman control in the major cities. The other way he deals with this problem is by moving the army into northern Italy for its training and for its camp. By maintaining them in northern Italy, he can enforce Roman control. Now, Rufus has done a lot for the Republic, and I believe he doesn't get the credit he deserves. But he's doing a lot. He has been rebuilding the army from scratch. He has stopped the panic from spreading. He has sent out directives to make sure that the manpower is where he needs it. And he's making sure that the army is being trained in some manner and can pin down possible betrayers in northern Italy. While he's doing this, though, the Senate is looking for a hero. Rufus is doing amazing work, but they need a general that can give confidence to the men, who has proven himself a capable military leader and can give the Roman army the morale boost that it needs to take on the 3-0 Cimbri tribe. And as the Senate is searching for this hero, word reaches them of Gaius Marius's final victory over the Numidians in Africa. Now, if you know your Roman history, you know who Marius is. But for those of you who don't, he is a general who became consul in 107 and sent to serve in Africa 
Now, he hasn't been in our story because he hasn't been dealing with the northern tribes at all. He's been stuck in Africa since being consul in 107. When the Senate heard about his victory, and they were desperately searching for a hero to lead their army, they elected Marius as consul in absence. Now, this should be a double surprise for those of you who know your Roman history. And it really should tell you how scared the Senate was. Consuls were not trusted by the Senate whatsoever. They feared the idea that a consul would get too much power. And that they would eventually become king or tyrant and overthrow the Senate. But they are so desperate. Being elected without actually being in Rome, because at this point Marius is still in Africa, is an extremely rare thing for the Senate to do. They don't want to give someone the power that's not right in Rome where they can keep an eye on him. The other issue with Marius's election is the fact that he's already been elected as consul. His consulship ended two years ago. And in 135 BC, a law had been passed prohibiting anyone from having a second consulship. Again, it leads back to that fear that if they had more than one, they would become a tyrant or king. But this goes to show you just how desperate the Romans were at this point. And the Senate had no choice in their mind other than to make Marius consul and have him come back to protect Rome from the Sembri. This fear of the Sembri and the possibility of Rome falling will allow Marius to not be elected just one more time, but four more times as consul, which was completely unprecedented within the history of the Republic. No one had done this before. Marius has much to do with his re-election, and there is no doubt that he wanted to have control for as long as he could. But the Roman Senate and the fear of the Sembri forced their hand in many ways. Now Marius did all he could to prove that he was the hero that the Romans needed. He timed his arrival into Rome to be his first day of consulship, and spent it having a parade celebrating his victory in Numidia. As part of his victory march, he had the rebellious king Jugurtha and his sons walking in front of Marius, showing just who he had defeated. He then called on the Senate to meet him, in which he entered wearing his triumph robes which at the time was considered an insult. However, it proved to the Senate that they needed him, and it proved just how much power that Marius had that he could walk into the Senate wearing these robes. So on January 1st, 104 BC, just under three months since the crushing defeat at Ereseo, Marius takes over the army that Rufus has built secures northern Italy, and the Senate can finally breathe a sigh of relief. 
Marius decides that staying in northern Italy will not be the effective military strategy to defeat the Cimbri. You have to remember, the Alps, while it serves as a wall, blinds the Romans to any threats on the other side and slows their reaction time. So Marius crosses the Alps and returns to the Rhone River by the spring of 104 BC. He establishes Roman control back across the Alps and allows him to effectively respond to any threat that moves towards Rome itself. However, Marius doesn't push his luck. He does not try to reconquer all of Gaul that had been part of the Roman territories before the Battle of Ericeo. He's not going to try to create that land bridge to Spain. For Marius, it's important to establish some control over the region and to get the control of the Alps, but he can't afford to stretch his army or have it shatter fighting tribes emboldened by the Cimbri's victory. Instead, Marius focuses on building a defensive structure on their side of the Rhone River, protect the Alps, and to train his army. After a while, Marius looks over his army and decides to split it in two. He takes the smaller army that represents the core of what Rufus had trained in the early months of the crisis, and he builds a canal from the Rhone to the Mediterranean. The other army is to take up station further north and guard the northern passes from a possible threat. As he is sitting on the Rhone River, building this canal, he starts to build stronger relations with the local tribes. He figures out those who are loyal to the Sembrai and starts to eliminate them, trying to avoid war when possible. One of the most important things he does is he continually stresses the fact that the Sembrai could arrive at any moment. And he spends the next two years claiming that the Cimbri are right on the other side of the Rhone, planning to invade at any moment. And it works. The Senate believes him. Because despite Marius's inaction, they keep him as consul. They allow him two more years in power. Now, I know I've spent pretty much this entire episode on the Romans, but I wanted to show you everything that Rome went through from three months after the disaster to up the next two years. You're probably wondering, okay, what about the Cimbri? What are they doing? Do they cross into Italy? Do they take Rome, make them pay? Do they disappear? Well, this is the first time that I don't have to say we don't know. Because we actually do know what they do. Well, sort of. We know what they're doing. You see, the Cimbri have been successful. They've pushed the Romans out of Gaul. And for several months, they no longer have to worry about Rome interference. However, the Cimbri don't stay. Instead, they decide to move into Spain. Now you're probably thinking, why Spain? Why are they going there? They just defeated the Romans in Gaul. Why are they moving down south? Well, it's clear that the Cimbri never had a chance in Gaul. 
as after their last victories against Rome, they never found a place to set up base in goal. They had defeated the Romans twice before, but they're still this roaming tribe. And so maybe they saw Spain as their chance of finding a new home. And Spain makes sense on several other reasons, too. First of all, it's further away from the Romans than Gaul. There's an entire sea and a land full of angry tribesmen that the Rome would have to conquer in order to get to the Simbri's new home in Spain. Another bonus fact is that Spain is already in turmoil. Remember, Spain has been in constant infighting, either between the tribes or against the Romans. And it is why the Romans had taken over southern Gaul to build their land bridge to Spain. Well, now that Gaul is lost, there is no route for the Romans to use. And Spain actually falls into anarchy. The Romans almost having to abandon it completely. Remember, the Senate, Marius, Rufus, they're all focused inwards, protecting Rome at this point. And so Spain falls off. Troops aren't being sent to help fight the wars in Spain. And if anything, they're being pulled out to help defend Rome against a possible Sembri invasion. And so Spain and Gaul are the casualties of the Battle of Arecio. They fall out of the Roman Republic for a while. And the Sembri decide that it's time to establish their own home. And they choose Spain for this reason. Now, unfortunately, the sources don't mention much about what the Sembri are doing in Spain, other than the fact that they go in, and two years later, they're defeated and pushed out of Spain by the local tribes. Not by the Romans, but by the local tribes. And it goes back to this weird thing with the Sembri. They can defeat the Romans no problem. They defeated them three times so far. And these Romans have literally beaten all of these other tribes. But they can't defeat the Sembri. It's just a rather weird scenario where one can beat the other, but then loses completely to someone that the first one had no problem with. However, the Sembri are defeated after just two years of trying to find a home in Spain. And so once more the Sembri retreat into Gaul. And they hear about this new Roman army under Marius, who is yet again on the Rhone River, where they defeated the last Roman army. However, there is a big difference this time around. The Sembri aren't going to go in alone. In our previous discussions, we've talked about the fact that there could have been other allies with the Sembri, and it makes sense that there were other tribes within the Sembri because they have to be losing a lot of people in this migration. Every single source agrees that the Sembri are not alone this time. They have been joined by multiple tribes. Their time in Spain and possibly thanks to ties in Germany and Gaul, garners them so many allies that they form two large armies with a third army as support. And their plan is to march on the Roman armies in Gaul, crush them, and invade the Alps. And 
next week, we will look at the confrontation between the Sembrae and the Roman hero Marius at the battles of Aquae Sextae and Versailles. Over the next week, vote on our Facebook page as to who you think will win each of these battles. Maybe it will be the Romans' time, or maybe the Sembrae will continue their streak and mop the floor with this so-called Roman hero. I hope you all have a great week, and I'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you.